Hello and welcome to another episode of the Rethink Energy podcast, where the Rethink Energy team talk about the technology behind this week's energy news. I'm your host for today, Connor Watts, our automotive and battery analyst, and I'm joined yet again by our editor and hydrogen analyst, Bogdan Evramuta. Hello, everybody. As well as our solar analyst from Australia, Andres Fontenot. Hello. In this week's episode of the podcast, we're going to be looking at the start of a significant investment in Indonesia from Chinese battery company CATL, which is likely to see the Indonesian nickel industry leaning even further towards Chinese demand and away from any other potential sources that may come about as a result of policy. We're also going to be talking about how the US Inflation Reduction Act hydrogen tax credit system maybe isn't fit for purpose in its current state and what could be done about it more importantly, what Europe is doing with regards to incentivizing hydrogen production properly. And, for, and then we're going to talk about um, how there's been a few potential investments in Australian solar manufacturing that may or may not go ahead, but uh, the economics are interesting, so we think that they're worth a look and that some will indeed go ahead. Finally, we're going to take a look at some of the short items from this week's issue. These are all topics and the stories that we wrote in this week's issue as published uh, yesterday on rethinkresearch.biz. That's rethinkresearch.biz. You go to energy, you see the articles there and you'll be prompted to take a subscription. All right. So yeah, first of all, CATL is investing, I believe it's $420 million of an announced $15 billion into Indonesia's nickel industry, well, Indonesia's nickel and electric vehicle battery industry. And um, just for some context here, Indonesia currently produces half of the world's nickel, roughly, and it's increasing. I think Musk said something along the lines of that if you look when it comes to a, a high nickel ternary battery, it's not a lithium battery, strictly speaking, if you go by the weight of the metal, it's mostly nickel. So when it comes to sourcing nickel, Indonesia is among the cheapest sources because they're using something called a kind of laterite ore deposit, which tend to be lower grade and more difficult to extract from. But when you have something called high pressure acid leaching facilities, it becomes a lot cheaper over the long run. Um, it's a large initial investment, but it kind of amortizes throughout the course of the project because you can use lower grade nickel ores. That is going to be problematic because of the Inflation Reduction Act and where exactly needs nickel. Because if we're talking about domestic electric vehicle demand, China is heavily, heavily interested in lithium ion phosphate batteries, which don't use any nickel. It's only interested in nickel from the point of view of producing the high nickel ternary batteries for everyone else who wants them. America doesn't want Chinese batteries, despite wanting a lot of high nickel ternary batteries because of their ludicrous range requirements and their massive like vehicles that will need to be converted into electric. And so the total investment of this is $15 billion. It's one five billion USD that CATL, um, a subsidiary of CATL technically, signed with two Indonesian state entities at last April. That is a significant amount of money for Indonesia. This is, again, it's a third world country just only just starting to industrialize. It's difficult for a country like that to turn down this level of investment in a country. It doesn't really have any interest in doing so because it's already been a part of China's Belt and Road Initiative. It's the only reason Indonesia has, has any um, high-speed rail. 
So Connor, how does that uh, interact with the IRA and uh, the potential for Indonesia to export to the US, or are they not interested in that? Indonesia is interested in that, I can say that, because um, Indonesia's current president, who is set to be replaced, uh, I believe, this Valentine's Day, uh, his name is President Joko Widodo, uh, usually referred to as Jokowi. He's nearing the end of his second term, and so constitutionally needs to step down at the end of this election, which is on February the 14th. Out of the three candidates, his son is running as vice president for one of them, who is currently leading the polls. And so there's a lot of nepotism and kind of the, not the unfolding of democracy, but there's a not, well, there's some difficult aspects going on there. Regardless, he's been attempting to negotiate a free trade agreement with the US that would include raw material exports, not not necessarily raw material exports, but kind of nickel concentrate or intermediate nickel products is what they want to be able to um, export to the US for use in batteries, specifically nickel mat and um, MHP, which is mixed hydroxide precipitate. This hasn't materialized as of yet, but what has materialized is significant investment from Chinese companies like CATL. And so while that is a factor, even if a free trade agreement comes through with Indonesia to the US, it's not particularly useful because the IRA classes any company with um, a greater than 25% ownership from a foreign entity of concern, what I will from now on refer to as a FIOC, which is from any country that is heavily sanctioned by the US. So, um, Russia and North Korea, for sure, probably Iran. Yes, Russia, North Korea, Iran, but most importantly, China. Heavily sanctioned, but also not heavily sanctioned by everybody else. This is just, it's the fruits of a geopolitical dispute that has seen American lawmakers quite happy to completely, to make an attempt in completely alienating Chinese supply from their desired industrial supply chains. Indonesia is heavily, heavily entrenched in Chinese investment and Chinese debt. So you're going to be hard-pressed to find a company operating within Indonesia's nickel industry that isn't at least somewhat reliant on Chinese expertise or Chinese money. Specifically because when it comes to high-pressure asset leaching in particular, that might as well be a Chinese technology. It's heavily, heavily Chinese, and when it comes to licensing that technology and investing in the necessary facilities, you use Chinese equipment that's produced in China. You usually just hire a Chinese company. I believe Xinxian um, Holdings is one of the big players in it. And you just license the... You buy the machinery from them, you license the technology from them, they help you operate it, and it's inherently something you have to do with with Chinese companies. Basically, nobody else does it. And nobody else does it because it's horribly environmentally intensive. The the mine tailings produced from this are dreadful when it comes to the environmental damage. So, And because of that, Europe's not particularly interested in it either, or it would much rather find any other source of nickel supply. With how Europe's going about it, they want to do recycling. The difference with Europe is that they're not as interested in, in high nickel ternary batteries. We recently saw Stellantis make a deal with CATL in developing an, a lithium ion phosphate or lithium phosphate battery technology roadmap for its cars in Europe. And so they're not as heavily, they don't have as much of a requirement to go into the high nickel ternary battery side of things, whereas America does, or at least America wants to. 
really doesn't have to with the rate that LFP is increasing in efficacy in terms of low temperature operability and charging speed. Even energy density is improving fairly significantly over time. And so these next couple of years with the IRA in place, it's going to be difficult for companies to source nickel from a source that isn't indebted to Chinese resources and Chinese investment. So that's going to be a difficult point when it comes to IRA compliance, particularly as lithium prices are low. Because when it comes to the value of a battery, it's, first of all, it's nickel salts, or it used to be, back in, well, basically any time before this last October, I believe it was. That's when the flip kind of happened between the price of lithium salts to the price of nickel. And so IRA compliance is now, the easiest way for you to get it is if you source all of your nickel from somewhere that is compliant. So, as opposed to all of your lithium. So the crux of this article is this concept of Indonesia sort of choosing between the US and China on its nickel supplies, including with this upcoming election where you say there's one neutral candidate and uh, two are pro-Chinese on this question. But then yeah. you ask, where where are the customers for EVs? Well, mostly in China, aren't they? And probably more in Europe than in the US. And you also ask, who's got the manufacturing? And again, it's China. So it kind well, of makes sense. You ask where the hmm. where the customers are for EVs. Hmm. We say that yes, the customers are currently in China, but not for high nickel batteries. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So when it comes to for high nickel batteries, it's mostly in Europe and in the US. They're just exported from China because that's where the manufacturing capacity is. And so even then, lots of the manufacturing capacity for that is in South Korea or Japan, where they where they produced high nickel batteries as a matter of it being the successfully incumbent from the from kind of the late nineties through the early twenty tens before China properly got a grip on manufacturing. And yes, the um, demand from the US is not there at the moment, but it is rapidly increasing and that's where the demand is going to be. This isn't about necessarily the immediate sense of, oh, we want to sell to the US right now because that's where the demand is. No, it isn't. That's where the demand is going to be in five years from now till the end of time because US EV batteries are going to be much larger than Chinese EV batteries. So when it comes from a raw material supply perspective, even if you account for, like, like, if, even if you account for higher energy density and increased efficiencies in raw material usage, the US will still be a larger net consumer of raw materials, not necessarily the volume of batteries, than China will be. They're likely to sell a similar number of vehicles, but if the batteries in each vehicle are twice or triple the size, you have a larger market there for the raw material side of things. You also have a market where this is less of the case for nickel and more so for lithium and for other metals. When you have a market that is willingly excluding supply from other markets, then you have the opportunity to for additional arbitrage. The profit chance is greater. And so it's a, it's a larger market, or it's set to be, and a more lucrative market because it doesn't want anything to do with China. It's going isolationist. And one of the problems with that, economically speaking, is that you um, you open yourself up to paying higher prices because you're increasing your own level of scarcity. The most important part of this article is that there is an election in Indonesia on February the 14th. I'm going to be paying quite close attention to it because depending on who gets in, it's going to change Indonesia's relationship with China, 
which changes Indonesia's relationship with the US. It also changes whether or not it slides kind of further away from democracy, but that's another point entirely. Um, moving on from that particularly sad topic, um, related to the IRA, um, the Inflation Reduction <laughs> Act, yeah, Bogdan, so you looked at the hygiene credits this week yes. and how they're not particularly fit for purpose as how the US is designed right now. It meant, you mentioned that there's a comment period open for 60 days, was it? Uh-huh. Okay, why is that the case? Why is it not fit for purpose with how is this right now? I mean, with those things... Um... I guess it makes sense that the, I think it's the US Department, uh, Treasury Department that's officially releasing those and controlling them. Uh, it makes sense that there's, uh, there needs to be a period of discussion between kind of the officials that come up with the rules and uh, so to say the players, they're going to play the game by those rules or at least attempting or rather um, are meant to be incentivized by the rules. To... The matter in question that I raised in my article is regarding uh, additionality which essentially means that um, if you want to qualify for the full tax credit of $3 per kilogram of green hydrogen or low-carbon hydrogen, you need to prove that the electricity that you used uh, has come from a wind and solar farm that has been uh, built within a period, I think it's, uh, it's a number of months, I think it's 36 months or something like that. And that essentially is um, aimed at preventing the greed being strained because if uh, governments like the US or uh, or European governments incentivize green or low-carbon hydrogen production and uh, producers start applying, producing hydrogen and applying for those tax credits, but they really use the electricity just off the greed, then that's going to strain the greed and then these countries will have to burn more coal or more natural gas or rely on other fuels and sources of energy. So then overall, we're increasing emissions again. So the whole thing is besides the point, right? So governments came up with this additionality concept where uh, they're essentially trying to link uh, low or green hydrogen, low carbon or green hydrogen production with relatively new wind and solar farms to incentivize uh, the build out, the phase out of those as well. So if I can, if I can jump in, I want to clarify what exactly this distinction is. Is this them saying you can't have a hydrogen plant that's running twenty four hours a day while you have a sort of superficial and formal agreement with a solar plant saying, oh yeah, all of our power comes from solar because we're buying because we have a contract with them. But of course, in reality, the grid is is a much more varied thing because the solar plant is only online during the daytime. Is that? Is that what it's doing? It's avoiding these formal but not really accurate consumptions of renewable energy. Yeah, essentially, essentially, because if you, I think if you, if you look at the scale of, of what the green hydrogen uh, industries are intended to achieve, then such formal contracts, if you have so many of them, then uh, things are kind of bound to to be lost between the blood between the lines, if that makes sense. And then obviously at the end of the day, you don't want to increase emissions with this. You don't want to promote the use of coal or natural gas because of greedy strain. So anyway, the, the difference is because my article came in light of a couple of um, US companies criticizing this publicly, uh, looking at Cummins um, and Plug Power, two quite, quite big <laughs> electrolysis uh, players and fuel cell players. Um, and then still the, going. It's still going. I think it's, uh, I was reading its uh, shares were uh, rising the other week. So Hmm. it's still going. Um, Yeah, the 
the difference between the US and Europe is that Europe is only going to I'm still employing this additionality concept but it will only apply it at a um, hour by hour uh, rate only from later on down the line and not initially it's going to initially do something more uh, monthly so the the lines will be a bit more loose and producers will be able to to kind of maneuver this and and juggle this uh, this concept more easily they're also including parcels like nuclear for obviously france's benefit um which the us is hasn't clarified that yet but we're hoping that the 60-day common period will clarify those things right so when do we expect a conclusion to this at the end of the comment period or shortly after no i think that at the end of the comment period I mean, I don't think the comment period will, will fix everything. So, you're probably thinking at the end of well, maybe the second yeah, half. Yeah, we're of the looking year. at yeah, we're looking at probably the end of 2024 when these things will be clarified. That's unfortunate, but I guess and the age means it's yeah. Not the bad. problem here is that Europe's Europe's already clarified those things. So, uh, what companies like Cummins and Plug Power are saying is that at the moment it's just you know, they have more of an incentive to just go and do it in Europe than the US. That's unusual. Yeah. considering the IRA and um, how the Inflation Reduction Act um, tax credits have been kind of disseminated so far. Very yeah. much been the opposite side of things. The company I talked to especially, who just everybody's running over to the US to establish themselves yeah. while kind of leaving Europe fighting for the scraps. And it kind of makes sense that the European approach where they will do this hourly matching mechanic, but they just don't need to do it right now. Because it's something that you yeah. that becomes more important as the grid becomes renewable. Because right now we've still got yeah. lots yeah. of uh, gas and even some coal on the grid. So you can just say, yeah. okay, we'll let the coal and the gas run at midnight. We have it still. It's only in the future that we would have to worry. No, it's, it's, yeah, I think I think it's spot on because that will allow the green hydrogen producers to to basically run capacity in time as well. So it makes sense. We don't going to have loads of gigawatts of electrolysis capacity come online immediately so it makes sense to be lenient at the beginning and see how things develop learn from you know the first couple of projects that the projects learn as well how that's how to how to benefit from those tax credits and then as things scale up then you can tighten tighten things accordingly does this mean that in future um hydrogen projects will i mean perhaps they would want to anyway but will they have to also own the renewable generation perhaps almost co-located i mean i think that's the ideal case scenario uh to be honest but i think it's fair to say that given how many hydrogen projects we expect to come online not every investor will have billions lying around to also invest in a solar or wind farm and perhaps it'll also boost uh, energy storage in general in the renewable sector because yeah the energy storage is what would now allow them to provide the hourly um electricity to these hydrogen projects yeah, of course, we'll extend that period of time where maybe they generate a lot of electricity on a sunny, windy day. Hmm. There's been we'll a lot of support when it comes to the energy storage side of things recently. Um, the US just introduced its um, framework for the support of long-duration energy storage. And they've finally kind of, um, they've actually defined a few things, which is very helpful for the industry. But that's another article, another day. Andres, so... Australia is getting a few projects within the solar supply chain that might actually come through. Is this an attempt at onshoring away from China? 
Yeah, and I was quite confused because I'd completely forgotten about Australia's National Reconstruction Fund from last year, which was 10 billion US dollars uh, with 2 billion assigned to renewables uh, of, of government money. So that sort of explains how they're able to, how we're able to do this, I should say, since I'm in Australia. Um, hmm. So, so what is this? Well, the latest announcement that prompted me to write this article is just Tindo Solar um, upgrading from 150 megawatts of module production capacity to one gigawatt. That's solar modules. Um, now, they might actually have been able to do that even without a huge amount, of, without too much dramatic help in terms of subsidy and uh, protectionism. Because uh, it's just modules. It's not as energy intensive, technology intensive, or investment intensive compared to cell wafer polysilicon and, and so on. So, you know, that, that's how they've managed to survive for the past decade on a, a, being the last module manufacturer in Australia. So, in and of itself, you know, this is an announcement that is attention grabbing, but not really hard to explain. Although they, they definitely do want the government to help them get a, a cheap piece of land to build it on. What company doesn't? <laughs> which, kind of, which kind of reminds you of just what I said about it not being that investment intensive, because uh, I'm sure for mm. sell or wafer, the, the equipment cost becomes relatively a lot more equip- expensive than just the land. Um, so so that's, that's Tindo Solar. I've spoken to them before. I think there's a link to it somewhere in here. Um, right, let's start your article. Mm. And... Uh, but there's, there's a couple of others, and really the other ones are a bit stranger. Uh, one that I want to mention just in passing, because uh, it, it's just a startup, is Clearview Technology. Um, it's it's this company which I think has glass panes which are designed to deflect some of the light into some sort of f- funky um, photovoltaic system at the edge of the panels. And so it's like a greenhouse that also gets you a little bit of solar energy. It sounds quite strange, and like I have to interview them before I really understand it, so I need to start harassing them uh, for an interview. But it, you know, that's a that's a manufacturing process. Then there was the the most remarkable and sort of outrageous one was the eight billion dollar polysilicon factory proposed in Queensland back in October. That was by Queenbrook Infrastructure Partners which is a backer of Sun Cable, which is that huge solar battery project that wants to lay a submarine cable to Singapore. And of course, Sun Cable itself uh, then announced a transmission, the, the, the cable factory in Tasmania. Well, I think they're still only considering it, but they said they were considering it. Uh, and that would take them over the three or 4,000 kilometers uh, to, to Singapore. An 8 billion polysilicon factory sounds very interesting considering the state of the like raw material prices right now. Yeah, I have to wonder sometimes whether they just didn't know the prices. No, the price actually already came down before they announced that, which is also kind of true of the one of the Chinese giants announcing um, that it was looking in, in, in advance talks, whatever that means, to, to build one in Saudi Arabia. And, and this is so remarkable because uh, polysilicon has been so focused. Like all of the polysilicon in the world has either been dying because it can't keep up with Chinese prices, or it's actually been in China, expanding within China, not not just specifically in China, but in specific provinces of China. So uh, it's, it's, suddenly, it's surprising to suddenly see these two announcements flying around the world at a scale that is equal to the largest um, uh, Chinese facilities. Mm. So I guess... I think we can comfortably say that that's probably not going to materialize. Yeah, yeah, that's the least to... that's the least likely one. But it's still kind of interesting that they felt able to propose it even. Like that's not that in itself is unusual. 
maybe they're trying to time it with regards to the next um, price trough that's caused by um, Chinese like boom and bust cycles. Well, I think this price trough of solar modules is going to last forever, or at least a few decades. Mm. Uh, I guess. No. I guess a new uh, technology well, could uh, change. Might want to get to uh, revising the project plan then. <laughs> yeah. So it's just it's just interesting to see some anything happening in Australia because I think we have the same problems here that Europe does. I don't think we're a very natural destination for manufacturing, but there's a couple of caveats. I mean. These days, it's quite fashionable to build solar power to power your factory, and we have much better sun for that. We have cheaper land, I would assume, uh, considering there's so much more of it, and we mm. have a lot more raw materials for, for certain. So, and perhaps it's useful to be close to Southeast Asia because maybe they do the middle part of the manufacturing and we do the raw materials and the finished product. That's all very interesting. So some of this will materialize, some of it won't, Yeah, um, as is the case of industry, ain't it? Let's move on to um, a couple of short items from this week's issue. So um, something that I found interesting this week is that Saudi Arabia has um, increased the country's um, expected resource estimates um, and reserves from $1.3 trillion to $2.5 trillion. This was last updated in um, 2016, so it's been a good while. And what this mostly says is Saudi Arabia is actually paying attention to this now, or at least enough to put a number to it. And it increased its um, resources estimates, and it expanded what resources it believes it has on its land, to include the most important one being rare earth elements. Um, It'll be quite interesting because Saudi is um, expecting to... um, allow 30 exploration licenses this year. And particularly for rare earth elements, I don't know where they've gotten the idea from this. I'm guessing it's from a preliminary assaying or something of the of the region's geology. But when it comes to rare earth processing, I wouldn't be surprised if Saudi tried to make a kind of near-to-European hub for manufacturing. And that could um, supply both Europe and the US. Because as of right now, a vast majority of rare earth manufacturing is mined in China, processed in China, exported from China in the finished products. And China (coughs) recently began to kind of increase its weaponization of rare earth processing technologies, which it also has a monopoly on. So... Saudi is going to struggle to process any rare earths it finds, so it might just mine it and then send it over to China for all we know. But if it doesn't do that, if it can find a way towards processing it in a manner that is efficient and reasonably cost-effective, then I wouldn't be surprised if we saw a bit of a rebalancing of that market away from a complete monopoly of China towards Saudi Arabia. Because when it comes to chemicals processing, they aren't bad at it. When it comes to investing in infrastructure projects, I assume it's just going to crash and burn when it comes to <laughs> Saudi Arabia or the UAE. But mining isn't too well. Apologies, chemical processing when it comes to something like lithium brine or ore processing is a isn't always too different of an industrial process from 
from the petrochemical industry. It's obviously closer if you use fluids like a lithium brine, but you're working with hazardous materials. They have some expertise with regards to that, obviously, when it comes to petrochemical industry. And I can see them doing quite well in the rare earth um, element industry. The question is, because they're already on quite friendly terms with the US, <clears throat> the US produces some of its own rare earth minerals. A uh, new mine is coming online soon in the US that's um, expected to increase their production a fair, a fair chunk. So they might not need to import it for too much longer, not only because the rare earth metal demand is substitutable for common elements that are just slightly lower efficiency. They're primarily using electric vehicle motors as the permanent magnets, which um, give the motor kind of, doesn't give the motor power, but it affects power characteristics. And so um, the replacement options are just slightly less efficient, which leads to increased weight and slightly decreased power delivery. Um, so yeah, it's looking to get more into mining because obviously oil only has so long of a shelf life nowadays with the rise of renewables and it's rapidly, well, it's pretty desperately looking to divest away from it now. And um, this is one of the routes it's taking. Right, uh, finally, this is the last point. Um, Hyundai, they've, uh, this is one that you've written, really, they plan to offtake 3 million tons of hydrogen by 2035 for use in logistics, green steel, and power generation. Now, Hyundai does also just have a heavy industry side, so that's partly going to be related to that. But more news from Hyundai this week was that they've patented a pressurized solid-state battery design, which um, looks incredibly odd, and the might come to nothing, it might be used in the company's solid state batteries. It's just very interesting to see the difference between these two and how it is very much simultaneously researching the battery side of things for its passenger vehicle and its automotive side, while also saying hydrogen is going to be needed for its, what does it say here particularly, you, you put it as trucks, Buses, trams, special equipment, vessels, power generators, and advanced air mobility. Was this a quote from the um, side of it? Or... Oh, they're also going to start manufacturing PEM electrolyzers. That's more its heavy industry side, correct? Yeah, I mean, look, they, um, like you said, they do have a heavy industries branch, so green steel, big, big potential there to use uh, hydrogen power generation, probably not so much, but we do know that Japan and, well, mostly Japan and, well, South Korea as well, they're quite keen on using hydrogen in literally everything. So it doesn't surprise me that Hyundai uh, is looking at using it in power generation as well. Uh, but anyway, but yeah, they're making a, a PEM electrolyzer as well. They're joining the, the club of, of heavy industry players, uh, joining the PEM train, so to say. It'll be interesting to see how much exactly it's researched into both the battery side of things and the hydrogen side of things. Mm. Not clashes, but which one kind of wins out. Because yeah. it has realized that both of them are going to be mainstays of the energy industry mm. going forward. Just maybe not necessarily in what proportion. I don't have much faith in the claim that like buses are going to be staying around for uh, yeah. for the hydrogen side of things, but the rest of that seems fairly reasonable. Um, yeah. That'll be it for this episode of the Rethink Energy podcast. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in, and we hope that you'll 
listening into future episodes of the podcast. So I'd like to thank you for your time and goodbye for now.